0: Happy New Year! Welcome to another episode of the Play On Podcast here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. We are proud to be starting the new year off with a very special guest. Today we have one of the foremost authorities and scholars on the 1623 first folio edition of Shakespeare's plays, Eric Rasmussen. Eric Rasmussen is an English professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, focusing on the editing of Shakespeare and early modern drama. In 2012, he published the Shakespeare First Folios, a descriptive catalog, which included him and his team locating the 232 surviving copies of the first folio. He also published the popular trade book, The Shakespeare Thefts, in search of the first folios. And since 1999, he has served as the author of Shakespeare Survey's annual omnibus review for Cambridge University Press. Most recently, Eric traveled to northern France to authenticate the 233rd surviving first folio. Thank you so much, Eric, for being here. We really appreciate it. It's uh, an honor to talk to, uh, you know, Pretty, you're pretty much a foremost expert on Shakespeare folios. Um, and it, it's incredible that, that we have a half hour of your time. So thank you.
1: Well, it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Um, I wonder if we could start out and maybe you could just describe uh, for our audience, what what is a folio and what what's the difference between these, these old texts you're looking at and maybe uh, the addition some of our listeners might have on their bookshelf?
1: Well, a, a, a folio uh, is, they take a big printed sheet. And when you fold it in half, uh, the, the book is still uh, a, a pretty large volume. It's grand. Mm. And before Shakespeare's first folio, folios were reserved exclusively for works of theology and philosophy and history and Bibles. Yeah. And the, the Shakespeare first folio, which his company put together in 1623, a couple of his fellow actors about seven years after he died, mm-hmm. was the first time that a, a, a grand folio was devoted entirely to plays so this was this uh-huh. was a risky venture and and also represents the beginnings of people taking dramatic literature seriously. Before this, they were really thought of as just sort of popular entertainment. Yeah. Um, and then the the the, the differences between uh, the folio and and, and, and something we, we might get in a, a more homogenized version on a a Penguin paperback or something is that you can you can see things in the folio. The typesetters had personalities, and we know there were some. There was one typesetter who had a really high hand. Way with his copy. If he read it and didn't understand it, uh-huh. he would change it. <laughs> and so there's there's a line in Hamlet about the life-giving pelican, and this refers to the myth that a pelican would pierce her own breast in order yeah. to feed feed her young with her blood. Yeah. Uh, this this typesetter, this compositor, didn't understand that, so he changed it to the life-giving politician, <laughs> uh, which is just just kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, and there was there was another who was a uh, an apprentice uh typesetter, and he made a lot of rookie rookie mistakes yeah and so we we find things in hamlet there 's a line where uh, Hamlet jumps into the Ophelia 's grave and wrestles around with Laertes and screams, "Oh trouble whoa and in uh, in in this particular typesetter's page he he reproduces that as "Oh terrible wooer." <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> which which is which is it's it, it's really I mean it, it it's so interesting because you can see back 400 years when this thing was being set into type yeah. uh, the personalities of these of these individual workmen behind it
0: wow so so the text that ended up in my you know say my Norton anthology of Shakespeare uh as an undergrad at Utah State University what was there a folio or maybe the first few folios we, we'd kind of located? And did that end up being, you know, maybe the more canonized version version of, of Shakespeare's plays? Or is well, was, was there kind it, of a just it, crazy convoluted story in, in how these things, uh, the text got handed down?
1: And it, it's tricky. So in a play like Hamlet, Mm-hmm. Uh, about ha- half of Shakespeare's plays were published during his lifetime yeah. in quarto editions, much smaller than than folios. Quarto you fold the, the, the paper uh, in half and then you fold it into quarters yeah. for the book, and so it's 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 half the size and much cheaper. And there there was a quarto of Hamlet that came out in 1603, the first the first edition.
2: Mm-hmm. But it
1: looks like this was a version of the play that had been put together by the actor who played Marcellus, one of the one of the sentries uh, at the opening of the play. Marcellus's uh-huh. lines are perfect. The scenes that Marcellus is in are pretty good, but the rest of the play is kind of garbled. <laughs> and and it, you, I think anyone who's been in a play knows, has the experience of even if you have a small role, you you often yeah. think you know the entire play. And we have some evidence that Shakespeare's actors would transcribe plays from memory in order to give the manuscripts as gifts to their friends. Yeah. So maybe this actor playing Marcellus did this, and somehow that manuscript found its way to the printer mm-hmm. and got itself published as the first edition of Hamlet. And when the company saw this, they released an authorized version, uh, presumably to, re- to replace it in the uh, – maybe they thought of people – read how dreadful the first edition was they wouldn't come to the theater (laughs) and so for the authorized edition they released shakespeare's rough draft his 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 very first version of the play uh that they had they had in their archives and that's interesting because it's about 4,000 lines long Oh wow! And then, and then for the folio edition uh, that came out in 1623, they used the version of the play that they had been performing in the theater. Uh, so they had the playbook manuscript, and mm-hmm. it was much more richly annotated in things like stage directions and stage action and things. But it was also a lot shorter because when they took, when they brought Shakespeare's plays to the stage, then as now, yeah. directors and actors made made cuts, and so it's a much more streamlined version. And one one of the great questions for editors is, well which do you want to present to readers? Yeah. And for a long time editors have said, well it's gotta be the full, long Shakespeare version, the more Shakespeare the better. And that's that that's interesting. So they've they've reproduced then the quarto. Yeah. But in fact the folio is the version that was you we we think that we know was used on the Shakespearean stage and you can sort of imagine the, the players saying to Shakespeare, Will, Will, you know, too long, fourth act, on <laughs> forever. can we cut this big speech? Uh-huh. And you either imagine Shakespeare going kicking and screaming or saying, Oh, you guys are right. I'm I'm I get I get way too bogged down in fourth acts, thank you. Yeah. Uh and so if 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 we think of Drama as a collaborative process between writers and actors yeah. uh, then then we 'll privilege that folio, which is the theatrical play. But if we think of writing as a solitary task by by individuals in ivory towers, we might privilege the the uh, uh, that that Cordo but there the are real decisions to be made between those two and yeah. and the ones that editors take it it obviously matters for your experience of reading I certainly you know if I ever ask my students, my undergraduates, do you want to read the long one or the short one guys <laughs>
0: <laughs> that 's an easy answer yeah <laughs> that's
1: right that, that's a no brainer so,
0: so is there is there a sense that um by the more the more folios the more texts you 're able to spend time with the more are you learning more about the works themselves or are you learning you know more about the history of how the work uh, maybe spread throughout uh, the Western world. What, what what do you discover as as you uh, open up one of these folios?
1: I do. I knew, I knew. Well, it's it, there are little things in within the text mm-hmm. that are that are interesting. I mean, in, in in when they printed the the folio, they had a really curious method of, of doing press correction. Is that they would set the uh, a play into type and then they would start printing it, and then and then. At some point, the, the proofreader would come along and pull a sheet and proofread it and correct it make some changes, and then they would stop the press and make the changes in the metal type, and then they'd keep printing. So you might have two, three, four hundred sheets in the uncorrected state before they corrected the, the, the errors, and then another 400 sheets in, in the corrected state. And so in any individual copy of a folio, there are going to be some pages that are in the corrected state, there are some pages uncorrected, and it's really interesting because often the Shakespearean text is somewhere in between. There's a famous line in uh, uh, Henry the Fourth where Falstaff says, oh, I hate this worse than a cup of sack with lime in it. <laughs> and it, it means basically, they used to disguise how terrible uh, some Spanish uh, sack, which was uh, like a, sh- a sherry, was uh, by, by by putting lime in it. So uh-huh. they would say, "Well, that sour taste is just the lime," uh, and Falstaff does, doesn't like that in his in his drink. And in the uncorrected state, it says, "I hate this worse than a cup of sack within it." <laughs> and so clearly they'd left out the word lime. Yeah. And so they, they said to the, the, the typesetter, well, you've got to put lime in there. And the typesetter said, well, this is a problem because the type's already all set for this paragraph. If I if I insert four new letters, I'm going to have to reset the whole thing. So what he did is he took out the four letters in, in it. And then it, for his corrected state, it says it's worse than a cup of sack with lime. <laughs> and the only the only reason we know what the real Shakespearean line is is by if you take the uncorrected state and the corrected state and put it together, and you get the line "I hate it worse than a cup of sack" with lime in it. Uh-huh. And and that's that's pretty interesting because you would, you would assume that a process of correction would really, if you had the corrected state for every page, that yeah. you would have the final Shakespearean text. But but of course you you don't. And as you mentioned, with with new folios, I mean, we we now have. Two hundred and thirty-three copies yeah. uh, of the First Folio. We see all sorts of things like reception history. We see what what uh, what people have annotated. We see the uses that have been made of the of the folio. Sometimes you can see that it's been marked up for theatrical performance. Uh, you yeah. can see things like we found copies with um, muddy paw prints from a cat. <laughs> uh, the book was clearly open on a table, and a cat walked across. We've seen ones with wine stains and uh, burns from cigars. Yeah. And then my my favorite is there's a there's a copy in Japan uh, with a musket bullet going halfway through it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's and incredible.
1: That's, that's, and especially because the folio is a big book, right? And in, in yeah. order for this, this musket bullet to penetrate, uh, this couldn't just have been on a table. Somebody had to be holding this up. And in a, in a nice riff on the, my, my Bible saved my life. My, my Shakespeare yeah. folio saved my life here.
0: <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Um, can you maybe tell the story of how a folio, which has been, uh, you know uh, not not to be all uh, economical about this but it it is and has been one of the most valuable books going back to oh 18th 19th century right how 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 do these books disappear for hundreds of years and then resurface if you had to tell the story of that book that we just found in France uh, what is that what is that story like well this is
1: this this is interesting so uh, basically there is a there was a Jesuit college in Saint Omer in the north of France uh-huh. uh that was founded by the English Catholic Church in 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 Shakespeare's lifetime um as a place for English Catholics who could go to university since they weren't allowed to do so at in in England in Oxford and Cambridge uh-huh. and so and we and we know many C- English Catholics uh availed themselves of this opportunity uh-huh. and after when the uh when the college so the college uh you know was instituted in the 1580s uh and and was around for hundreds of years when the college finally closed the town library inherited their uh-huh. excuse me the town public library inherited the books from the jesuit college gotcha and one of these books was an old edition of shakespeare and it didn't have a title page and it didn't have any markings on the binding so it was simply cataloged as sort of old collection of shakespeare's plays yeah. and they knew that they had this and it was in their holdings for uh for for hundreds of years and until very recently just last fall um they were doing a, a, a an exhibition of of uh, their british literature books wow. and one of the librarians was savvy enough to take a look mm-hmm. at this and say wait a minute this might be this might be an original and he did he did some uh some preliminary work and then contacted me and said I I think we might have an original. And my response – I get about a dozen of these inquiries every year. Uh (laughs) My my response was, I don't think you do. I think you probably have a facsimile. And one of the big problems is that when photography was invented in the 19th century, the very first book that they reproduced by photographic lithography was – the Shakespeare Folio, of and course. they were so proud at how how authentic it looked, they didn't put any markings on it to identify that this was a facsimile. Yeah. They don't say a reproduction of the 1623 original. And if you own one of these 19th century facsimiles, well, they're now 200 years old. Yeah. So they they look like old books anyway. Yep. And and there's nothing on there, so so it it really uh, it's understandable if collectors or librarians come upon such a thing and assume they might have an original. Yeah. And but then he then he told me that it's missing the last 3 pages and the whole play of of uh Two Gentlemen of Verona oh. uh is is also missing. And I thought, well, you know something that is what happens to books that have been around for four centuries. Yeah. That they lose the the pages the last pages of Cymbeline, which are the final pages in the volume, you can understand yeah. how they might get worn off at some point, especially if the book hadn't been bound uh that and so that that seemed more more plausible yeah. um, but it's it, it it's interesting i mean it every couple of years or so uh a copy will surface and you know uh, about uh, about a decade back a um some a, a woman died intestate in in London, mm-hmm. and they found among her effects a Shakespeare first folio and they they had to spend a lot of time finding a long distant relative who was to inherit this uh, this incredibly valuable book
0: oh wow what 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 do you do when you get these phone calls and you go to to look at a book what are What are some of the key things that you use to determine? Uh, authenticity uh, can you just look and say okay this this isn't you know four or five hundred years old this is two hundred years old is yeah, it that simple it,
1: it, it, the, 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 it, it is actually I I don't mean mean make it sound trivial no no but Shakespeare's first folios were printed on handmade rag paper yeah and when the the papermakers uh, made the paper, they, they put in a, a unique watermark, sometimes with their initials, to, so it was their trademark to show that that was, this was their paper. Yeah. And handmaking paper was, was a, uh, an arduous process. Yeah. And in the course of making, uh, many, many, so the Shakespeare folio is 450, it's 900 pages long. Yeah. It would take 450 sheets of paper, and if they printed maybe 700 or 800 copies, it would take many, many reams of paper. And so we we have found 19 watermarks that were used for the Shakespeare folio, and we've only found those watermarks in books printed by the same printer in the same year as the Shakespeare folio. So basically, this was the paper they had in that shop. So you you look for one of those watermarks on a page, and you've got a 400-year-old book and wow. the difference between handmade rag paper i mean it's wonderful stuff you can wash it you can iron it uh and and 19th century wood pulp paper uh-huh. uh, much of which is already uh, the the acids in the wood pulp are already making this paper to uh to degenerate quite quite badly yeah. is 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 instantaneous mm-hmm. and it really it really is the case that it, that, that, that paper, that watermark, and you've got it dead to rights. The yeah. problem is, it's really hard to do that remotely. That you can't, you know, there's a polytechnic in India now, yeah. uh, who's, who's absolutely certain that they, they have a first folio, and I'm absolutely certain that they have a facsimile. Um, but <laughs> it, 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 it's very difficult for them to do that to do analysis of 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 the paper because yeah. they it's not their fault they just don't have the expertise for this yeah yeah and it's not the kind of thing a digital copy because a digital copy which will show you the 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 text and the text may be perfect because yeah. it's a perfect reproduction
0: absolutely wow uh, have there been attempts uh to to um counterfeit a folio at all yeah,
1: it's uh, uh, yes and it's it's interesting um in the 19th century, uh, when it when it became uh, sort of a fetish of yeah. the super rich uh, to, to purchase folios, and not only to purchase folios, but to complete one. So if you had one that had a missing page,
2: yeah.
1: uh, they would try very hard to locate an original copy of that page. And failing that, there was a 19th century forger Uh who would make exact pen and ink replicas of first folios. They were, they were complete, wonderfully detailed work. Uh, and, and it was, it was interesting. His name was John Harris, and he was so proud of his work that whenever he'd finish one, he'd sign it in very, very tiny letters at the bottom. (laughs) And, and then, and, and I, I, I think the, the super wealthy could, would pay thousands, uh, for these pages and because then they would put them in and they, and their 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 volumes be complete. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it's often I will uh be, be collating a copy for a private owner. Yeah. And I'll say, "Oh, and this is a Harris facsimile." And and they'll and they'll look disappointed that it's not an original folio page, but from my Point of view. That's a work of art. Yeah, that this, this person has been able to replicate this in pen and ink. I mean, obviously, in days long before Xerox. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so the. Um, but but uh, Harris used to get into trouble because he would do this for, and he'd do it so well. That you couldn't tell the difference between an original page and a a Harris facsimile. So the authorities at the British Library uh, insisted that whenever he did this, that he'd he'd sign his name to it Uh uh, so that you you have at least a little trace identifying this as a a forgery. forgery, It wasn't done for nefarious purposes, uh, but it it clearly was – and I just just think they're things of beauty.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. What – uh, as you sort of travel around the world looking at these um, purported first folios have you learned anything about um, how the work of, of William Shakespeare has maybe spread um, throughout the world uh, through Europe and into the Americas I mean is there is there a story inside of the distribution of these texts
1: oh clearly I mean there and, and in so many ways um, in the, the turn of the 20th century um, as Americans were gaining more wealth, mm-hmm. they suddenly fetishized the First Folio. So Henry Huntington, yeah. who built the transcontinental railway, uh, bought four copies of oh, which wow. are now at the, the Huntington Library. But Henry Clay Folger, who was Rockefeller's partner in Standard Oil, uh-huh. uh, did him uh, what exponentially better. He he acquired eighty-two copies. So. <laughs> Of the 230-some-odd oh. copies in the world, a full-third of them are in the Folger Shakespeare Library. There are more, more copies of Shakespeare in the Folger than there are in, in the United Kingdom. Oh, wow. And, and then in the 70s and 80s, when the Japanese uh, yen was at its zenith, the, uh, the Japanese started collecting, uh, and every first folio that came on the market was yeah. purchased by, for a Japanese institution or a Japanese collector. And now the Meisei University outside of Tokyo has yeah. a dozen, uh, copies, which is, uh, which is really uh, very, very mm-hmm. fascinating culturally because this yeah. is, this was a period at which uh, the Japanese were also collecting Van Gogh's, buying, famously buying Van Gogh's sunflowers, yep. and the 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 idea that you would buy high example high examples of Western art uh, in this period was uh, that, I mean it's just culturally fascinating. It is fascinating.
0: Do do you think the appeal to people maybe from other countries, other cultures, is uh, just the reverence? Of- People that speak our language have for Shakespeare is—is is it just the collectability of it? They see it as an investment, or is there something—is there kind of a, a something mystical or magical about uh, just obtaining and having one of these books?
1: I—I I, I think that's the case, and I also think we—we we have some indication. I mean, there. So often uh, Shakespeare folios get stolen, and uh, it it is like stealing an impressionist because it's very hard to to hawk on the open market, so this must be something that you – that you acquire simply for your 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 personal gratification of having this this rare thing of beauty uh in your uh in 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 your possession. Yeah. Uh but it's it is it is remarkable how often they go missing. I and mean, this is this is a big book. Yeah. Uh It's it, it's not easy to uh to sort of slip these things out in your pants pocket. Um, <laughs> but uh but we've we we know we have traces of about a dozen or 14 copies over uh, the years that have been stolen and have, have yet to be recovered.
0: Oh, wow. I, I didn't realize there were that many. Um, you, you touched on early um, the fact that this Shakespeare's folio was one of the first sort of non-religious texts um, used in this format, printed in the full folio format. Is, is there a sense, is there much a dialogue um, uh, historically about about why people then chose to make Shakespeare uh, one of one of the trial runs of this uh, printing process for you know secular purposes is there a yeah. sense that they knew uh, this had to be preserved or was this uh, are there any sort of um, historical earmarks that that led to this is it was it was there already a sense that, that he was going to be the king of the canon I mean do you have any sense of, of why Shakespeare why then
1: yeah I mean we it, it, it it's an excellent question and it's it's we have to deduce it from what little we have from Hemings and Condell, the two actors who, mm-hmm. who seems to have taken the, the uh, responsibility for publishing this. Yeah. You know, a, a few years before, Ben Johnson, one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, had yeah. published his works in folio, but he'd included poems and masks and things that were more traditionally thought of as literature and not just plays. Yeah. But Ben Johnson got made fun of. They said, oh, clearly... He, he doesn't know the difference between work and play. <laughs> get, get it? Uh, yeah. And, and, and so, for uh, for the uh, for Shakespeare's actors to take the the incredible, uh, yeah. unprecedented step of bringing out 36. Plays in a folio format. They're clearly taking a big financial risk. Yeah. And what okay. what's interesting about their uh, their introduction is they keep insisting, "Hey, buy this book. Don't don't read it. What don't just read it in the bookstore. Whatever you do, buy it. <laughs> take, it take it take it home." So there's, there's clearly a, a commercial side. But but you're exactly right in in thinking that. In order to do this, in order to get – this book took two years to print.
0: Yeah, yeah you had to huge, have some sense that it was going to be worthwhile, the, the investment, right?
1: Right. And the, and the, and also to take, this, to take this risk of publishing what most people would have thought of as popular entertainment. Yeah. It would be very much as if someone were to take the scripts for a TV show. If you yeah. took Everybody Loves Raymond's scripts <laughs> and you were to put them in a leather binding and call them literary works. Yeah you would get laughed at yeah and 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 people would say well that's not you know, that's not what we consider literature, but the, the fact of their doing so really institutes the beginning of what we think of now as dramatic literature. Yeah. And, and, and that this, this was something to be taken seriously. And they had to have seen something in Shakespeare's plays. I mean, there's yeah. a great deal of debate about mm-hmm. whether Shakespeare cared very much for publication if, you know, in fact, during his lifetime, half of his work is, it goes unpublished. Uh, but the, these two, these two actors and a consortium of publishers clearly cared enough yeah. uh, to invest in the commercial venture, mm-hmm. and, and it seems to have been successful. I mean, they, they had to republish in 1632, the second folio came out.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: less than a decade, and especially when you need two years of lead time to print one of these things, yeah. um, that's a pretty remarkable uh, uh, you know, sort of bestseller story.
0: Do we know how many copies of, of the first and second folio were originally printed?
1: We, 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 we know that, that the stationers company, which was the, basically the trade guild, the union, uh-huh. uh, of printers and publishers, uh, mandated that you could, you couldn't print more than a thousand copies. Okay. And after you printed a thousand copies, you had to reset the type and start over again. And basically they wanted to keep printers and typesetters in business. Yeah. And that being the case, and we think given the, the financial, outlay of this they probably printed around 750 or 800 Mm -hmm. hedging their bets uh, to print enough that they could sell, but if they printed, if they printed a uh, thousand, it would have taken 20% more time, I and mean, you're talking a two-year project. That's, yeah, that would. Uh, so would, right around there. And if if we're right about that, and we've got 233, that's uh-huh. a, that's a 30% survival rate. That's really good. And that is the small. The smaller cordos didn't do so well. I mean, we have one quarto of Titus Andronicus. We have two cordos of the first uh, first edition of Hamlet. So they were much more more ephemeral for 233, yeah. that's
0: that's that's remarkable. That is remarkable. I got to refer back to your uh, everybody loves Raymond syllogism. <laughs> is there a little bit of a sense then that, that um, you know, the, the birth of dramatic literature, as you termed it, was this one of the first uh, acts in our language of people uh, paying attention to pop culture, of, of pop culture maybe bleeding into um, that sort of higher culture? is there is there kind of a historical sense that that's the case or
1: i i i think absolutely i think at at, at the time everyone would have thought of uh in, in in the way that we that we still think of television that yeah. this is not that this is not high culture uh that this is entertainment this is this is consumer culture yeah. and the fact and and the fact that that people were starting to put you know to put to explore real genuine ideas in 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 popular culture uh, and and that someone discerned that and said hey let's let's start taking this seriously uh-huh. um, and, and it's you know and i think I think we can see it happening for TV as well right I think people would point to certain certain uh, Downton Abbey or something as a, as a wow that's really well written and I yeah. I could see reading the scripts for that for instance where uh-huh. not, I'm not sure I'd read too many Everyone Loves Raymond scripts
0: no no probably not probably not can I ask one question uh, about your career and your fascination with uh, with all this stuff absolutely excellent what uh, how did you uh, did you come from a literary background a history background a theater background what when when did you find yourself in a position to become an expert on uh, the documentation of Shakespeare's works.
1: Well, I mean, I I, I blame my parents or, or or credit them with it. I'm not sure which. Uh, <laughs> when I when seriously, when I was when I was three years old, my parents bought a Pontiac Tempest, and my mother named it Miranda.
2: <laughs> oh wow!
1: And and she baked she baked a cake uh, for the new car, uh-huh. and I, I I swear my earliest memory is of this teal Tempest station wagon cake and so clearly i was fated for shakespeare yes and i got into the the, the folio business um, there there is uh, my colleague anthony james west uh was a british businessman who uh was was quite affluent and then decided to do a phd in shakespeare and for his dissertation he decided to, to do a, a census of first folios And went out and spent 15 years and his entire personal fortune traveling the world tracking down first folios. Oh wow. And he he found 70 more than were recorded in the previous census. It was absolutely remarkable. You think the six million dollar book and there's seventy copies we didn't know were out there. That's incredible and, but what he had envisioned was that he would he would find them and then we mm-hmm. would return with a larger uh research team to do really thorough descriptions of the annotations in them, the bindings, the owners, the press variants, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. so I put together a research team and then we spent mm-hmm. uh about seven years doing you know, Following up and doing the the, the really detailed uh, descriptions of these things and. You know, as a result of that, uh, you, as you're as you're doing more and more work, you find more and more uh, more copies. Yeah. And so now, now I'm in the position where when people find what they what they think is uh, a treasure in their attic, uh, I'm I'm the one that that gets called upon. I'm, I'm not sure this this is a, a curse or what.
0: But, but... <laughs> oh, it it doesn't sound like a curse. I it, I imagine a, a, enough of your job is travel that you don't get too sick of the classroom.
1: And it's, it's, no, it i is. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, but the, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a documentary filmmaker whose, uh, who, whose dream project is for me and Kenneth Branagh to go out and, <laughs> on a buddy movie tracking down first folios. And, uh, we're, we've got our sights set on this one in, in India at this polytechnic. And I, I think she thinks Sherpas are going to be involved.
0: <laughs> but I, I'm, oh, but it's I, meant- quite that romantic yeah i gotcha it, it could be somewhat of an adventure but i don't imagine it would be quite indiana jones in scope exactly. right exactly <laughs> yeah right on well eric thank you so much this has been so illuminating and i could sit here and talk to you all day i say that a lot about a lot of my guests but i mean it uh this is absolutely amazing i, I hope all of our listeners have been convinced uh to go out uh, and buy your book i'm <laughs> going to certainly and, and thank you again so much
1: well It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. And when people go out and and, uh, find things in their attic, I I expect to hear from them.
0: (laughs) Awesome. We'll make sure they give you a call. (laughs) Excellent, Eric. Thank you. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Play On Podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at PlayOnUTShakes to keep up to date on all things about the podcast. Come back and listen to a new episode in two weeks.